Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Please visit audiblepodcast.com slash best for your free audiobook download. Now, welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The Onion Radio News, The Rachel Maddow Show, Joe Lyles, and The Daily Show. excellent op-ed today and he explained that this is Bernie's decade what does he mean by that you know how Bernie Madoff uh, pretended to have the 50 billion dollars and everybody who was had given him is their money they thought they were really rich and then one morning they wake up and it turns out they're not rich at all they didn't have any money Madoff had already made off with it so that is what has happened to our economy we thought we were rich and we were doing well and the economy's humming along and we got our money in the stocks and we got our portfolio and we got our 401k and we got our pension plan and one morning we wake up and we got nothing. In fact, uh, as Krugman explains, since 2000, the income of an average American family has gone down, not up. Okay, now that is, in American history, I don't know if it's unprecedented, but it's something very, very rare, especially for that long a period of time. And it makes sense because, as he points out, we used to be saving at a 9.5% rate. And uh, between 2005 and 2007, we saved at a 0.6% rate. So there's almost no savings in the country. So it's not just Madoff's fault. It's not just the banker's fault. We weren't saving any money, but we thought, no, it's okay, it's okay, because we got all this magical money. But we didn't have the magical money. It was all a, a, a mirage. And who set up the mirage? It was people like Hank Paulson who said, hey, don't worry, man, we're all making tons of money. And by the way, since I'm making you this money, which now we know never really existed in the first place, I'm going to take a cut off of it. No, 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 not when you cash out, but I'm going to take a cut off of it every single year. So he, take a, he took a cut, and he took another cut, and he took another cut, and by the time he retired from Goldman Sachs to go work for Bush as the head of the tre uh, Treasury, he had taken $500 million on commission for profits that didn't really exist. You see, that's how you got robbed. Now, Hank Paulson's just one example, and he might not even be a great example of it. But the overall philosophy was, at these financial companies, take as much as you possibly can and put it into, not the company, but into your personal pocket, whoever the executives are. Get paid, get the bonuses, and then run for the hills. And then if a problem happens, it doesn't matter, you don't own the company, your bosses don't own the company. Nobody owns the company. And if you have a tremendous problem and all the shareholders uh, go home broke, who cares? You're not the shareholder. You take as much as you can, because that's how they set up the system. And then if the shareholders are all wiped out, and in the end, it's still an enormous problem because the whole economy is uh, you know, dependent on the financial industry, well, who cares? Then the American taxpayer will pay the bill. So they took the, the money that didn't really exist and they actually grabbed it and went home with it. Now they want us to not cap their pet and say that if we do, they'll threaten to go elsewhere. It's a frickin' joke, man. It's an absolute joke. And if Obama's behind this, and he is, it's not if, now it's confirmed, that he's dead wrong. And he's got to get his head out of his ass.
Congress establishes the new Department of Finding Change on the ground. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. Congress voted today to establish a new government agency specifically charged with finding loose coins on the ground in couches or wherever they may be located. Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid told reporters the new department is expected to be, quote, a real shot in the arm for the U.S. economy. Many doubt uh, what we're doing, but... To me, any nickel we find is a nickel that we didn't have before. The legislation also includes special orders to look for coupons, car wash tokens, and a comb lost by Wisconsin Senator Herbert Cole in 1995. Not only absolutely positively none of my business and none of your business, but for what it's worth, those relationships do appear to be perfectly healthy. No, no, the president has got a relationship problem in his political life. And as Americans, it may be time for us to intervene, um, at least to start talking openly about the awkward truth here for his own good. In short, President Obama appears to be stuck on somebody who does not feel the same way about him. He is in a non-reciprocal situation. He can't get over the one that's hard to get. Hard to get! It's the whole appeal. Anybody who's ever had a crush knows how this works. The problem with our president and this particular political crush is that the hard to get one is the Republican Party. They are essentially the only group that has not fallen for him, and they're the one group that he can't give up on. The Democrats, they have been in love with Obama for months. They hang on his every word, no matter what he does. You're kicking us in the teeth by having Rick Warren give the invocation at the inauguration? That's terrible. I mean, we're all still showing up at everything, but you know what I mean. Democrats get worried if they don't have a text from Obama on the cell phone, at least an email from David Pluff in the inbox. It's been two days. Do you think he's mad at us? But Republicans, on the other hand, not so much. In his first big legislative effort, the stimulus bill, President Obama showered House Republicans with attention, with gifts, tens of billions of dollars in tax cuts. And how did they reward his courtship? Zero votes on the stimulus bill. He keeps giving, they keep taking. 
Obama invited Arizona's two Republican senators over to his house, the House, the White House, to watch the Super Bowl, and they blew him off. He reached across the aisle and included a few Republicans in his cabinet, and the Republicans in the Senate thanked him by blocking or delaying some of his other cabinet picks. And so the tough love message for our country's chief executive about the opposition party is, dude, I'm sorry, but they're just not that into you. It's time to move on. Don't wreck your life for these guys or your political agenda. NBC News has confirmed that President Obama will name New Hampshire Republican Senator Judd Gregg to be his Commerce Secretary nominee at 11 a.m. Eastern. When word of this latest instance of Obaman post-partisan courtship made news on Friday night for the first time, it raised many eyebrows, including these. Why was this so interesting? Well, Senator Gregg is a Republican, right? A conservative, not necessarily President Obama's type. But Judd Gregg's replacement in the Senate will be appointed by New Hampshire's governor, John Lynch. John Lynch, who is a Democrat, appointing the replacement for this Republican. Now you know why the eyebrows were raised. Once Al Franken gets seated from Minnesota, which seems increasingly likely, a big D Democratic appointment from New Hampshire would mean 60 Democrats in the Senate. That's the magic number. Filibuster proof. Republican power would be zeroed out in Washington. President Obama, you wily thing, you. I underestimated you. I'm sorry. What? I'm sorry. It's my Purdue. Are you serious? <sighs> Apparently, the leading candidate to replace Judd Gregg in the U.S. Senate is a Republican. J. Bonnie Newman. And that's because Senator Gregg said in a statement today that he would not accept the Commerce Post if his, quote, departure would cause a change in the makeup of the Senate. So then, why on earth would President Obama want Judd Gregg as Commerce Secretary? Senator Gregg is not exactly a match at politicaleharmony.com. He earned a lifetime rating of 4% from the AFL-CIO on labor issues. According to the Washington Post, he voted with his party more than 83% of the time during the last Congress. Do you remember the last Congress? And the American Conservative Union gives him a lifetime rating of 784 so giving Mr. Gregg the Commerce Secretary job, the one that was supposed to go to Bill Richardson, it puts someone way to the right of the Democratic mainstream in a crucial economy job. It doesn't buy the Democrats any further power in the U.S. Senate. It is a big poke in the eye to the Democratic base in the labor movement. But it does get the president more bipartisanship bragging rights. Those so far have demonstrably been worth exactly zippo, zip, zero, nada. It has been a sincere and maybe even noble courtship, understandable even. But all it's doing thus far is allowing Republicans to brag to their friends about all the stuff the president is doing for their attention. Mr. President, as a concerned citizen, I got to tell you, they are just not that into you. And seriously, it's not you. It's them. You have so much going for you. You could do so much better. Joining us now is E.J. Dion, op-ed columnist for the Washington Post and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution. Mr. Dion, thank you so much for joining us. Good to be with you. Um, you wrote in your column today that there is a rapidly forming conventional wisdom that President Obama and the Democrats will only be able to claim victory on the stimulus if it passes with some Republican votes. Do you, do you think that conventional wisdom is substantive or is it, is, I mean, is there any reasoning behind it? 
Well, I think Obama's reasoning is twofold. One is that he believes that the economic recovery is not just about money, but also about psychology, and that if Washington looks like a partisan demolition derby, people aren't going to have a lot of confidence in the future. There may be something uh, to that. And Obama himself has talked about it so much that he laid that out there as a test. But I think the question he's got to face now, and by the way, if you have relationship advice for me, I'll take it. Uh, but if <laughs> Um, what he's got to sort of look at now um, is what is he getting for it? You, if you give and give and give and still get no votes, that's not a negotiation. That's a sucker's game. And I think when you look at what the conservatives are most attacking in the stimulus bill, it's the parts that are most part of the Obama program from the last campaign, uh, expanding health insurance coverage, green energy investments, big education um, investments. I think he can keep playing the bipartisanship uh, for what it's worth, because it does seem to help his approval rating. But he's got to draw some lines, uh, I think, and just say, you know, you, I'm just not going to give these things up. And by the way, guys, you want more concessions? Give me a few votes, please. Well, does, does political capital accrue to bipartisanship? Do you actually earn yourself the ability to do something that you couldn't otherwise do because of the fact that you had the, oppo the opposing party vote for you on a previous piece? of legislation. I know in theory people hypothesize about that, but have you ever seen it happen? Well, I think the theory on the stimulus bill in particular is because this is designed to uh, get the economy moving again, um, It's uh, the idea is to convince everybody you can start lending money, you can start spending money because we're on the road. And if more people support it, if Washington seems united, then people will have more confidence in it. Again, I think Obama's gotten quite a bit out of um, you know this bipartisan image he's created. I don't think all of this was a waste of time. But I think the House vote is a, is a real uh, sort of warning. Um, and that what, you know, what I worry about is giving up on the fundamentals. If he, this is going to be one of his best chances to make a mark in areas that he promised to do things about. If the Democrats can't get uh, more people health insurance coverage, what's the point of voting Democratic? So I think there's, you know, now is the time to toughen up a little bit and say, I'm nice, but I'm not foolish. On the Judd Gregg nomination, which we now know is going to be announced tomorrow morning, EJ, uh, my hypothesis on this, you heard me lay it out at the top of the segment, is essentially that this would have been a sort of awesome power move had Judd Gregg been replaced by a Democrat. Maybe he wouldn't have taken the appointment had that been the eventuality. But with Judd Gregg in all likelihood going to be replaced by another Republican, what's the advantage to Obama of bringing Judd up, uh, Mr. Gregg up to the cabinet? Well, the first thing I think is that I bet you and I have never stayed up late at night worrying about who's Commerce Secretary, with all due respect. I mean, it's not state, it's not HHS, uh, it's not labor. Um, and the, the second point is, I think, bipartisanship that gives up principle is a mistake. Bipartisanship for a purpose makes sense. Obama's trying to build a new majority. You build a new majority by making converts. In the exit polls, 17 percent of the people who said they vote 
voted the last time for George W. Bush voted for Obama. That's about eight points. I think putting Republicans in your government, as FDR did, um, is a way of making people comfortable saying, whatever you were in the past, this is about what we're going to do now. And in terms of the replacement, uh, it would have been a great trick if he could have gotten the 60th vote by naming Judd Gregg as Commerce Secretary. But, you know, there are uh, New England is one of the few places that still breeds moderate Republicans. Olympia Snow has an 80 percent, the senator from Maine, the Republican, has an 80 percent rating from Americans for Democratic Action, the great old liberal group. Judd Gregg is at 15 percent. There's a lot of room between uh, 15 and uh, 80. Uh, so as long as it's commerce and not labor or a few of those other things, I'm not sure it's a huge loss. We look forward to the day when we finally have a labor secretary. That's another one of those ones that they're holding yes, up. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. E.J. Dion, columnist for The Washington Post. Great to have your analysis. Thanks for being here tonight. So you knew that I was going to have to take a minute out and tell you guys about Audible. And I'm in this really lucky position of having used the service a lot in the past. I can just tell you from experience that they have a great selection of audiobooks, as well as a whole library of other kinds of premium audio content to go through. The most recent thing I got from them was Al Gore's book, The Assault on Reason. And my takeaway from using Audible is that these guys are the ones who got it right when it comes to downloadable audio content on the web. Now, I know that you felt lucky before just because you were able to listen to this show. Now, it's even better because as a listener, you're going to get a free book from Audible. All you have to do is go to audiblepodcast.com slash best. That's how they know that we sent you and they will bestow upon you the free audiobook of your choosing. audiblepodcast.com slash best. Go there. Check out all the good stuff for yourself. Wouldn't it be interesting if I was president? <laughs> because you would get a totally different strategy. I would not roll post-partisan stuff. I would actually, but in a completely different way. I would lay down the law from the get-go. I'd be like, listen, here's what you guys got to understand. You're in a pathetic minority, and I'm going to roll over your asses. I got a 75% approval rating, and I'm going to drive it straight up your ass. Okay. Now, if you're good boys, I will listen to some of what you're saying, and I will incorporate it. Because I'm not an unreasonable guy, and I actually make, want to make this thing work, and I want to be the president of everybody. But if you're bad boys, you fucked with the wrong guy. Okay. Now, that would be an interesting way to roll. I guess we'll never see it, but, uh, but that's how I'd do it. And it'd, be, it'd make for an interesting and exciting place. But so far, Obama, you know, especially in getting elected, certainly knew what the hell he was doing. So we'll give him the benefit of the doubt for now, for now, for now, kind of, a little bit. Now, give you a couple more uh, things about what's happened today that are uh, interesting little notes. So they put Judd Gregg as the Commerce Secretary. Okay, now I was had a problem with this to begin with because they didn't get the uh, Democratic senator from New Hampshire. Instead, they appointed a Republican senator like idiots. Uh, but how's Judd Gregg? Is he going to be all right as Commerce Secretary? Huh, look at this. Uh, did you know that in 1995, Judd Gregg voted to kill the Commerce Department? He thought the Commerce Department shouldn't even exist. And now he's the head of the Commerce Department. Not under the Bush administration, under the Obama administration. He's basically the John Bolton of commerce. Remember how John Bolton got appointed to the United Nations and he thought we should blow up 10 stories of the United Nations and he wasn't sure that it should even exist? We took that guy and, you know, the equivalent of that guy, put him at commerce. Uh, he uh, also had an 83% 
uh, voting record with the Republican Party in the 111th Congress. Now, among Republicans, 83% isn't bad. But you know what? That's still voting with Bush and Cheney 83% of the time. He thought they were geniuses. They had it nailed down 83% of the time. Now, if you think that's bad, wait till you get a load of his other rating. The AFL-CIO, you know, union, labor, etc., the kind of people that vote for Democrats, for example, and that we want to take care of. We want to build the middle class, right? And uh, the kind of people that you think could be quite relevant if you're the Commerce Secretary. You know uh, what rating they gave Judd Gregg when he was a senator? A zero rating. Zero. Never voted with labor. Never. Now, that is according to the AFL-CIO. I'll be even more fair. Uh, he voted with uh, the uh, minimum wage increase in 2007, finally waking up to the fact that he lives in New Hampshire and represents the people of New Hampshire, which are not the people of Alabama or Kentucky or, you know, deep south where the Republicans win no matter who they vote against, right? Well, that's not even so true anymore. But anyway, uh, he voted with it. But back in 1999, he voted to kill minimum wage. Not kill it, but to uh, no more increases. And you know what? His side won there. So from 99 to 2007, for eight years, they never increased that minimum wage. And all the people who earn minimum wage earn less. And they suffered along with it. Well, look, don't worry. Trickle down was coming their way. And now that guy's the head of the Commerce Department. And what do we get in return? Squat. Jackola. We got nothing in return. mass of snakes to receive 160 billion in government stimulus. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. The Senate Finance Committee settled on a bipartisan agreement today to inject $160 billion directly into a slowly writhing ball of intertwined snakes. Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid assured the public that their tax dollars would be well spent. Any economist will tell you, once you achieve financial stability in the serpent population, uh, our economy will be on the road to recovery. Over $25 billion earmarked for a blind cavefish was cut from the bill after Republicans argued that government handouts to the eyeless monstrosity would only encourage blindness in all species.
May I ask a personal question? Yes. No? Yes, go ahead. Oh. Uh, does your husband, your family income, is it exceed right now two hundred fifty thousand dollars? Yes, it does. It's not going to. We're going to fix that. Well, we are I, fix it. I hate to tell you, yes, your day is already bad enough. You're in a state of shock. I mean, you live in the United States of America, and you had you had this conversation with your husband this morning. Yes, this over morning. cereal. You, now I, look at, I know how you feel. You live in the United States of America, and you have decided that in order to be secure, you got to work less and earn less so that you can hide from the revenues, right? Well, there, there's, there's so I mean, he works 12 and 14 and 16-hour days, and it's it's because he wants to provide nice things for his family. Yeah. And if, if working all of those hours and missing all of that stuff is yeah. is not going to allow him to I do hear that, you. there's no reason to do that. All right, now— this is uh, uh, I don't know if you've been able to I'm, I, I don't know if you've been able to divine what's going on, but basically the woman says we're just going to work less and we're just going to make less money because we don't want to give it all away to the revenueers. We're give it all away. All right, we're just if we make too much money, they're just going to take it all. They're just going to take all of our money. Wait a minute, let's listen to Limbaugh. Limbaugh's talking to the same woman. This is he's continuing on. He's going to flog this mule as much as long as he can and milk it for all it's worth. Let's listen to it. I had told this on the air the other day. I, I met with my uh, my financial advisor. And he's running through all the numbers. You got this over here. You got this over here. I said, no, no, no. You're looking at this the wrong way. What? What do you mean? I don't have any of it. I want you to understand that my attitude now is that if I ever do retire, that money isn't going to be there. I'm counting on the fact that this administration is going to find a way to come get it, just like you think. Well, they will. They absolutely will, because the country will be in such a bad shape that it will be totally reasonable in everybody's mind, well, we need that money, and it's just sitting there. And we've got to get out of the crisis. That's the way New York State is talking right now. Now, two things. First of all, when, who has suggested that that we're, we go we go confiscate people's money that they've already uh, they've already earned it they've already paid taxes on it it's already sitting in their savings account or their IRA or wherever it's sitting who has who has proposed confiscating anybody's uh, uh, already accumulated wealth uh, Karl Marx uh, never proposed anything like of, of that particular nature he did propose uh, income taxes. Uh, by the way, uh, uh, by the way, uh, uh, Thomas Jefferson proposed uh, that uh, taxes rise geometrically at the higher levels uh, of, uh, of, uh, of property ownership, that property be taxed geometrically as the amount of property one owns rises. That's Thomas Jefferson, not a communist last time I checked, or maybe he is. Maybe they're ready to say he is. Maybe he was suspect. I don't know. That Thomas Jefferson sounds like a fellow traveler to me. But this is just nonsense. Nobody's proposed any such thing. The only thing, the only thing Obama has proposed with respect to taxes is to allow. In fact, he has actually delayed. He was going to speed up uh, repealing the Bush tax cuts. He's decided to simply allow them to expire precisely because he doesn't want to raise taxes in the middle of a recession. 
That's He's going to just let them expire when they naturally would expire. That's what they're talking about doing. And it's talking about raising the tax rate, of, uh, the, uh, the uh, tax rate of the highest levels of income over $250,000 a year, raising that tax rate from 36 to 39%. That's what we're talking. This is what they're talking about. Oh, it's not going to be there. They're going to find a way to come get it. And by the way, with respect to this woman talking about crying the blues, because, you know, her husband works. He works 12, 14 hours a day and earns over $250,000 a year. Uh, I hope he's working 12 and 14 hours a day to make more than $250,000 a year because there are people out there working 12 and 14 hours a day and they're doing good to keep a roof over their head. How about that? How about that? And our, wait, what are we going to do for them, uh, uh, my friend? I don't hear her worried about that, uh, number one. Number two, uh, this business about uh, this business. About, it, this, what this is is a tantrum, right? She says, well, the, you know, they're going to say, well, things have gotten so bad. Things have gotten so bad. How are they now? How are they right now? How, my friend, how are they right now? Your husband is making more than two hundred and fifty grand a year. How are conditions in the country overall for most people? Are people, most people in this country doing as well as you or not as well? Are there any people out there working 12 and 14 hours a day who aren't making 250 grand a year, north of 250 grand? Oh, yes, there are. Let me show you how that works. Six bucks an hour, that's a thousand bucks a month. If you're renting, that's it. That's your rent. Now, so so you got a job that pays your rent. Go get another job to put some food in the refrigerator and turn on the power. That's the reality of the cost of living. And there are people living like that. This woman needs to get in touch with them, number one. The fact of the matter is that she and her family have been one of the few families who have benefited under the Bush administration, the Bush administration who drove the rest drove the rest of the economy into the ditch, and now she's whining, worrying about how, oh, they might, that her taxes might go from 36 to 39% on what? On what? On the highest end of her taxes. This is the other thing that Limbaugh never gets around to explaining that nobody ever gets around to explaining about the way marginal tax rates work. Okay? Their their, their taxes will go from 36 to 39% on the high end. If you make 250 grand a year, if if that's the the cutoff line, if you're making 250, you're not paying that 30 to 9% rate. You got to make you got to you got you only pay it on the amount you make above 250. If you make 250,000 $1, you pay an extra 3 cents in taxes. That's how much your taxes go up, three pennies, because you pay 39% on $1. This guy's shooting himself in the foot. And by the way, if he's this stupid, good for him. Good for him. You know what, lady? I want you to I want you to start dragging your feet. I want you to start sandbagging. I want you to cut your income because you don't understand how marginal tax rates work. If you're that stupid, you deserve the, the loss in income. Let's say he's making two fifty on the nose. Let's say his tax rate, his effective tax rate at two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year is thirty.
30%. It's actually less because you've got your deductions. I, I, I guarantee you they got a big home mortgage and a big home mortgage deduction. I guarantee you. I guarantee you they've got some charitable contributions out there. I guarantee you that the, they're not paying 30% on that first 250 grand. But let's say they are. That means he's taking home 175. Let's give him a raise. Let's take him from 250 to $300,000 a year. He's going to be making $30,000 more than he's making right now. He made a took home 175 one uh, last year. He makes a $50,000 raise. He's going to take home 30 of it. That's right. His income is going to go from 175 to 205. That's what's going to happen. He's going to have 205 left over at the end of the year instead of 175. He's going to have more money in his pocket, 30 grand more if he makes $50,000 more, 60 grand more if he makes another 100. If he goes from 250 to $500,000 a year, he's going to have uh, hold on, let me do the math. He's going to be making another 150 grand a year if he doubles his income. If he doubles his gross, he's going to add another $150,000 a year. But if he thinks he but apparently he thinks, no, they're going to tax all of his income at 39%. No, it doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way, folks. And by the way, we need to start explaining this to people. We need to start explaining this to people. And by the way, the higher rate he's paying on what he makes north of two hundred and fifty grand a year, that higher rate north of two hundred and fifty grand a year, he's paying a higher rate on precisely that portion of his income that's not the part he needs to keep a roof over his head, to keep his lights on, and to keep his kids clothed. It's the money, it's his it is his risk capital, his investment capital. That's where they tax at the higher rates. But if he wants to drag his feet, let me tell you something. Let me tell you something. These people act like if he stops making lots of money, that he's going to be hurting me. He's not going to be hurting me. Because if he's making north of $250,000 a year, it's not because he is bolting on any bumpers. It's not because he is uh, framing out any houses. It's not because he's laying any concrete. It's not because he's walking steel on some skyscraper downtown. It's not because he's mining any car. It's not because he's working on in an oil field on an oil rig. It's not because he's a machinist um, uh, working in a machine shop producing anything. It's because he's working in a suit and tie deriving his income. His income derives from labor done by somebody else. The fact of the matter is that the plumber that works on his fixes his broken toilet and the and the uh, and the car mechanic that keeps his and I guarantee you he's in a Beamer or a Benz and the mechanic keeping that car on the road and uh, and by the way the, the the carpenters and the brick masons and so forth that built his house we know what they did for him in exchange for the pieces of paper he offered what did he do for them what did he in the end of the day do for them what tangible thing did he do in exchange for it. And I guarantee you the answer is nothing. And one day we will die and our ashes will fly from the aeroplane over the sea. But for now we are young. Let us lay in the sun and count every beautiful thing we can see. Love to be in the arms of all I'm keeping here with me. 
The head of the Republicans now, the RNC chair, Republican National Committee's chair, Michael Steele, is going on Sunday talk shows and making no goddamn sense at all. Now, he says that jobs and work are not the same thing. Let's see if we can decipher this uh, clip together. It's clip number two. Having been a, a state official, I know what it means to get those dollars when you're in, in tight times. But you've got to look at the entire package. You've got to look at what's going to create sustainable jobs. What this administration is talking about is making work. It is creating that's work. That's a job. No, it's not a job. A job is something that a, that a business owner creates. It's going to be long term. What he's creating. So a job is a, doesn't hold, count if it's a government let me, job. Let me, let me finish. That is a contract. It ends at a certain point, uh, George. You know that. Those these road projects that we're talking about have an end point. As a small business owner, I'm looking to grow my business, expand my business. I want to reach further. I want to be international. I want to be national. It's a whole different perspective on how you create a job versus how you create work. And I'm. I, Either way, the bottom line I is. I guess I don't really understand well, the distinction. Well, the difference, the distinction is this: if a government, if you got a government contract that is a fixed period of time, it goes away. The work may go away. That there's no guarantee that 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 there's going to be more work when you're done that well, job. We've seen millions and millions of jobs going away in the private sector just in the last but year. But they come, yes, they and that they come back though, George. That's the point. When they go, they go, they've gone away before and they come back. And the point is, the small business owners take the risk. They're the ones that are out there in the morning putting that second mortgage on the house, taking the risks that are necessary so that they can employ your your kids and my kids and future generations. Wait, wasn't the second mortgage on the house uh, how we got into this mess in the first place? <laughs> no, but you don't understand. Those jobs come back. They come back. <laughs> really? How? No, look, look, look. Here's the thing. If he wanted to make a limited point where he said, look, some of these construction jobs, when we rebuild the bridges or the highways, they're temporary. So I would prefer to create more stable jobs. All right, if he just stuck to that, he'd have been all right. But here, he made a distinction between work does not equal jobs. No, well, that doesn't make any sense at all. And then he claims that the government jobs are not as stable as private industry jobs. But we all know that's not true. Oftentimes, the government jobs are the most stable jobs in the whole wide world, whereas private industry jobs go away in droves, as Stephanopoulos pointed out. Look at what's happening in the economy. And his only answer to that is, but they come back. <laughs> How? W what do you mean? <laughs> it doesn't make any kind of sense. I, I don't have to tell you that. You can see it with your own eyes that it doesn't make any sense. It's they they only have the same answer over and over again. Never a fresh perspective. Always something about no. Let the private industry handle it. But how are we going to let this private industry handle it when they screwed it up in the first place here? And how would they handle it? Well, we just the government doesn't do anything. We step back. It's that 16 percent he's appealing to that I told you about earlier. That thinks that there's no need for a stimulus package. Let the private industry handle it. They've handled it so well so far. The jobs will come back. They'll come back somehow, I think. Where are you, jobs? Where are you? By the way, one other way for the jobs to come back is if you invest in green energy jobs, that creates a whole new industry. See, that way you create real jobs, even though it's the government spending, then it leads to private industry creating jobs. You see how the government and private industry can work together? But for Republicans, no. Never. Always the extreme. No, no government, no government at all. The American people don't agree with you, Michael Steele. Move on. Now I believe in what you say is the undisputed truth. But I have to have things my own way. 
our guest tonight, this is very interesting, was supposed to be this guy. His name is Rick Santelli. He's an analyst for CNBC and he's a former derivatives trader. Uh, recently became famous for a sort of Howard Beale moment on the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange. He'd done some critical reporting on the hundreds of billions of dollars of bailout money going to failed banks and uh, failed automakers and insurers of failed banks and automakers. <laughs> but when it looked like the president wanted a small percentage of that money to go to actual homeowners, whoa <laughs> David Banner became the incredible Santelli. <laughs> this president and new administration why don't you put up a website to have people vote on the internet as a referendum to see if we really want to subsidize the losers mortgages this is america how many of you people want to pay for your neighbor's mortgage that has an extra bathroom and can't pay their bills raise their hand how about we all uh, president obama are you listening yeah man wall street is mad as hell <laughs> Anymore, unless by it you mean two trillion dollars in their own bailout money <laughs> that they will take now mr. Santelli was invited to come on this program and accepted the invitation and then on Friday canceled or I guess the phrase would be bailed out <laughs> I have to say, I find cheap populism oddly arousing. <laughs> mm. But see, Rick Santelli is angry that these loser homeowners are going to get bailed out. He believes in personal responsibility. He believes in not rewarding the losers for missing all the warning signs. I mean, for God's sakes, the guy works at CNBC. <laughs> They're the best of the best. The only business network that has the information and experience that we need. In business, knowledge is power. And only one network has the information and experience you need. I just said that. <laughs> because when it comes to business news, you probably can't name another network. <laughs> Bloomberg. Okay, got it. So to all you dumbass homeowners out there, who let your optimism and bad judgment blind you into accepting money that was offered to you from banks. <laughs> Educate yourselves. Bear Stearns is fine. Do not take your money. I just really, if there's one takeaway other than a plus 400 somebody, Bear Stearns is not in trouble. Charlie, we talked about this yesterday. Lehman Brothers, he is no Bear Stearns. I would concur with uh, with Charlie that you just you can't compare Bear management and Lehman management. Uh, Lehman management is incredibly engaged uh, and, and responsive. Will Merrill need to raise capital? No. That continues to be the refrain from management from Mr. Thane. You saw they raised $12.8 in capital, remember. Uh, $4.2 of that was excess capital. No need to, con to raise additional capital. Capital says Merrill Lynch. The Bank of America is now the cheapest and the best, and I have to admit that I, as much as I like Wachovia, I think Bank of America is going to 60 in a heartbeat.
And this morning in New York City, AIG basically gave some sort of uh, uh, insight into how much uh, they may owe and how much they may lose. What they're saying right now is that the subprime losses or their exposure or whatever's going to happen to them is very manageable. And does it mean that they're not going bankrupt? Does it mean, obviously, they're not. They're the biggest insurance company, but well capitalized. It's not rocket science, homeowners. It's apparently alchemy. You just had to tune into CNBC shows like Fast Money and Squawk Box. Reasoned financial reporting that combines the raw speed of Fast Money with the intelligence of a box of parrots. You just had to know how to listen. You should be buying things and accept that they're overvalued but accept that they're going to keep going higher. I know that sounds irresponsible, but that's how you make the money. That's why the market just won't quit, no matter how poorly actual companies are doing. The worst of this subprime business is over. Very simply, I believe that it means it's time to buy, buy, buy. Fundamentals are coming back into play. I think people are starting to get their confidence back. Wow. If I'd only followed CNBC's advice, I'd have a million dollars today. Provided I'd started with a hundred million dollars. How do they do it? How do they do it? I can see why Santelli is mad at homeowners. Because CNBC does it with access. They're not afraid to sit down with CEOs from soon-to-fail companies like Bear Stearns, General Motors, and Merrill Lynch and ask them the questions that those CEOs would like to be asked. Will there be more write-downs at Bear Stearns? We feel pretty comfortable and confident in where we are uh, as we sit here today. So it doesn't sound to me like you're expecting to have any more write-downs to come. Uh, I wouldn't expect any. The upside potential for the company we think is good. And we're going to keep going with this uh, strategy. I got to ask you about Saturday night. Kid Rock comes out at your GM style event, raises the roof, so to speak. Have you seen the videotape of your vice chairman, Bob Lutz, and some of the dancing he's doing here? I think that the view is that, yes, the U.S. is going to slow down, but there's still a lot of optimism around the rest of the world. It's amazing. We've had a lot of executives on who say the same thing, that, in fact, their businesses are doing okay. That is amazing. <laughs> I mean, these CEOs saying their own businesses are doing okay. I mean, it makes sense to take the CEO's word for it. For instance, I know O.J. Simpson. He told me <laughs> that he didn't kill anybody, and he should know he was there. <laughs> Perhaps the network's finest hour was its interview with Sir Alan Stanford, whose bank and wealth management firm was posting oddly positive results in a down market because it was a fraudulent Ponzi scheme. You managed to avoid the subprime debacle almost entirely, didn't you? A hundred percent, we avoided the subprime debacle. What told you it was not a wise move? Well, it's very simple. I ran a Ponzi scheme. <laughs> Instead of investing the money, I stole it. Eight million dollars worth of it. I'm bad. Come on, CNBC's Carl Quintanilla. You got one of the biggest white-collar criminals in history live on the air. Don't let him off the hook. Before we let you go, here it comes. 
million dollar question. Is it fun being a billionaire? Well, uh, yes, <laughs> yes, yes. I have to say it is fun being a billionaire. <laughs> you. has happened. Um, Huffington Post has broken a great story here. Really interesting. They've got an audio tape of uh, two sets of bankers talking to one another. And uh, these are guys uh, that were actually uh, took over uh, Merrill Lynch. Okay. And the guys at Citigroup's group actually, so it's uh, not so good for Citigroup on this uh, front. Um, let me re-explain this. So Smith Barney is a part of Citigroup, and they took over Morgan Stanley, okay? And uh, Huffington Post has found an audio of a conversation that they had about bonuses, okay? And this is very revealing for the mindset of what's happening still today on Wall Street. This is after the bailouts have already gotten uh, happened. They've already taken, uh, combined these two companies uh, over $60 billion in our money. Okay, now listen to the executives of Citigroup telling the executives at Morgan Stanley how they're still going to get paid. Just don't call it a bonus. Let's listen in. So decisions we have made. <clears throat> Number one, uh, there will be a retention award. Um, please do not call it a bonus. It is not a bonus. It is an award. And it recognizes the importance of keeping our team in place as we go through this integration. Uh, we said we would um, uh, be providing a retention award when we announced this initially, and we will be providing a retention award. I know I've repeated this three times to you already, but that's for a reason. Some of you have been asking, will we be doing it? Won't we be doing it? Can we do it? And so on. We will be providing a retention award. Decision number two, the award will be based on 08 full-year production. Um, I think I can hear you clapping from here in uh, New York, but I'm not sure about it. Uh, but you should be clapping because, frankly, uh, that is a very generous and uh, thoughtful decision that we've made. Uh, we've spent a lot of time kicking this around. Uh, we could easily have done it from the point of closing, which is obviously going to be somewhere in the latter half of this year or, or around the middle of the year. And we just decided, as Charlie and I got together and we talked to Mike Corbett and the other folks involved with this, it was the right thing to do to give you that certainty. It'll be based off 08. Uh, 09 is a very difficult year. We understand that. Uh, clearly would have been cheaper to have done it off 09. 
Um, but we think it's the right thing to do, and we've made that decision. So that degree of anxiety, which many, many, many of you have emailed me about, and I'm sure have emailed Charlie about, is now off the table. That's something we will stick with. All right. You understand what happened there? So the, this group, uh, Citigroup Smith Barney, acquires Morgan Stanley, and they're going to pay uh, the Morgan Stanley workers a retention bonus. But no, 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 no. It's not a bonus. It's an award. Oh, they changed the word, so it's okay now. It's a retention award. Now, why do they do this? Now, the old way of thinking is, well, I've got to retain these guys at Morgan Stanley because they're geniuses. If I lose them, my company's going to be in a lot of trouble. Talent is very important on Wall Street. But remember, those are the geniuses that bankrupted Morgan Stanley, and that's why Citigroup had to buy them in the first place, and they got them cheap. No, 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 but they lost all the money at Morgan Stanley. So why the hell would you need to retain those guys? But we have to pay them so much money so they don't go somewhere else. Where the hell are they going to go? Are they going to go join Julio, the DJ, and working at McDonald's in Fort Myers? Where are they going to go? What a joke. No, it's because everybody's used to this culture of, we are so important on Wall Street, and we all deserve millions upon millions of dollars. No matter what we do, if we do well, we do poorly, we drive our companies in the ground, we bankrupt them, it doesn't matter. We still deserve millions, and we need a retention award. And did you catch that latter part? If they base it on 2009 and 2008 numbers, so you take a year, half of 2008 and 2009, the uh, retention bonus is going to be disastrously low, right? But they're taking 2008, which was a bad year, but much better than this year, so that those retention bonuses are even higher. Now, where are they getting that money, by the way? They're getting it from us. And they said, no, 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 don't worry. We got it from a different part of the company. <laughs> what different part of the company? They're like, no, 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 we took the taxpayer money and we put it over here. And then we took the money for uh, bonuses, I mean awards, and took them from over here. My ass, it's all the same company. The money's fungible. They took it right out of your pocket right there. Because they are so important. And those guys at Morgan Stanley, they need to be retained because they're geniuses. Stiglitz is right, man. This is, they're bleeding the banks every single day that we allow it. They're taking our money, putting it in their pocket, and running for the hills. We gotta end it today. Well, it's you and me, baby, no one else we could trust. We'll say nothing to no one, no how we bust and never crack a smile or flinch or cry. NBC. Here's a quick clip. Oh, you. I still got it. Apparently, this finely honed analysis has been making the rounds of the blogonet, the Intersphere, the uh, Twitscape. 
People think we did this uh, because CNBC's Rick Santelli, pictured here, canceled on our program. Not so. We specifically prepared that segment to air before Rick Santelli was to come on as a guest to give our interview a little more of what the French call uh, le discomfort. <laughs> so that was something that, that we were uh, hopefully going to do with him on the program. He didn't come, but that wasn't why we do it. Uh, so, so I'm absolutely would still be very happy to talk about CNBC with Mr. Santelli or any of the personalities on their financial shows, uh, whether it be Jim Cramer, uh, Maria Bartiromo, anyone from the cast of Five Ball Guys Make Noise About Money, uh, CNBC's famed Money Monkey, we'd be happy to talk to him, or my go-to guru for all things finance, the stock picking chicken. He's part of the crew at Smart Wampum. Listen, I'd even take the gang from Cudlow and the man with an ass for a face. So... By the way, that guy totally looked better before he shaved his beard. <laughs> and of course, my dream would be to talk to the host for my favorite CNBC show, How Are Your Stocks Doing with Rutger Hauer? <laughs> Mainly focuses on the international market. Did you see him break down last Friday? I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. I guess that's a sell. <laughs> uh, unfortunately... We haven't heard a thing from CNBC, although Jim Cramer did write an article for MainStreet.com complaining that we had unfairly used a video clip out of context to make it look like he recommended buying Bear Stearns stock a week before it collapsed. Well, we went back to the tape to listen. Should I be worried about Bear Stearns in terms of liquidity and get my money out of there? No, no, no. Bear Stearns is fine. Do not take your money out. This is really, look, if there's one takeaway other than a plus 400 or something, Bear Stearns is not in trouble. Oh. Okay. I was wrong. Actually, it's true. He wasn't saying to buy Bear Stearns. He was simply saying that if Bear was your broker or that your money was at Bear, your money would not disappear. He was not addressing the value of holding Bear stock. So, uh, Jim Cramer, I apologize. Uh, that was out of context. Technically, uh, you were correct. You weren't suggesting uh, to buy Bear Stearns. Uh, that was something that you did five days earlier in your buy or sell segment. I believe in the Bear franchise. You know what? It's 69 bucks. I'm not giving up on the thing. Yeah! <laughs> of course, while Cramer wasn't giving up on Bear at 69, 11 days later, the stock market was more comfortable with it at two. But it's all sort of equivocal. Uh, you know, it's on. I'm reiterating. I like Barrett's 60s. I like Barrett's 70s. He's not saying literally, I'm asking you to buy Bear Stearns. For that, you'd have to go back a full seven weeks before the stock completely collapsed. I'm asking uh, people who are uh, watching this video to buy Bear Stearns. Now, that was seven weeks before it collapsed. In the interest of context, continue. I'm asking uh, people who are uh, watching this video to buy Bear Stearns. Now, uh, Bear Stearns acts much better than it should. Uh, now, that's just intuition. Uh, and I don't want to put too much faith in intuition, but I have had good intuition over 29 years of investing. And I just think that this one has um, a, a very big upside, very limited downside here. Uh, it is, uh, I think that that last quarter, they've staunched the losses. Um, they're very good at cutting their losses at Bear. But the but Bear, I believe, is for sale, and I think there are many buyers. Could be a bidding war. Yes. All right, Jim Cramer, you said buy it bear. here. Tell him Wall Street Confidential. Buy bear.
So you know and I know that, for the most part, I don't have anything interesting to say at the end of these shows, but today, I think I actually get to break that trend. So just the other day, I get a text message from a friend. He'd gone on a little trip up to New York and met up with an old friend, I guess, uh, someone I don't know. And this old friend of his began telling him, at some point during the evening, how much she loves the Best of Left podcast. To which he responded, well, wait, I, I know that guy, you know, or something generally to that effect. And, uh, you know, just so it happens, I work with him and it turned out to be entirely serendipitous. They had no idea that one another had ever heard of the show. And, uh, turns out she's been a subscriber for a year and was just taking it upon herself to spread the good word. So by now you guys have been hearing me say what it, what it takes to help support this show, it's the 555 concepts, the easiest thing in the world. If you can afford it, drop five bucks in our tip jar. If you got the time and the capacity, drop five great clips that we can use in the show. And then, and the most important thing that anyone can do is take a minute and tell five friends about us. You never know what's going to happen. You know, you start telling five friends you might end up uh, talking to all kinds of interesting people who already know about the show and uh, you'll become even better friends with them because of it. You'll end up being the person who introduced someone to their new favorite podcast and changed their lives and they'll like owe you for that forever. Or you may end up talking to someone who knows me and then you'll end up having this great, funky, serendipitous uh, thing happen that you'll get to tell fun stories about later. I mean, and don't say it can't happen because it just did. So Steph in New York City has obviously been rocking the 555 concept and you all should too. You never know what sort of fun you're going to have. So there you go. That's the tip of the day. And that's going to be it for me. Coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the border and conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name's Jay and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Who take you out in the open door This is not my life just a fond farewell to a friend